Welcome back to About South. If you have ever found yourself making some sort of claim or gesture to how nice people are in the South, how welcoming we are, or what good host we are, then boy, do we have an episode for you today. Tony Schessel is with us talking about his new book, The Southern Hospitality Myth. Yes, the myth. We go over what's true about Southern hospitality and how it has a long history embedded with the region's other non-hospitable traits, including enslavement and segregation. Tony is professor of English at the University of Massachusetts, Lowell. We recorded this conversation in April, and we also discuss why understanding Southern hospitality still matters today for debates over everything from immigration to tourism. I'm Gina Kaysen, and this is About South. Today we are in Lowell, Massachusetts with Tony Sejal, and Tony is a professor in the Department of English at the University of Massachusetts Lowell. He works in Southern literature, he is an expert on Robert Penn Warren's poetry, and his latest book is on Southern hospitality and the myth of Southern hospitality. It is a beautiful book, and it also... Um, I think is going to be pretty interesting when it starts getting the kind of press that it needs. So even though I think most of our listeners at About South have probably heard of Southern hospitality, can you just briefly explain what's meant by that phrase and why in your book you say or describe it as a myth? Okay. Yeah, I think um, Southern hospitality can mean many things and it's meant many things over its long history. And I I think that um, it, it is kind of one of the most pervasive and persistent myths about the South. Uh, and by myth, I mean a, a story that's told about the South. Uh, and it's used to convey a lot of different values and ideals and send certain messages. Um, I think what we fail to think about and what I try to do in, in the book is to historicize it and to historicize that language and that story of Southern hospitality and how it's evolved over time. And, uh, you know, going back, uh, historians, when they write about Southern hospitality, they go back uh, to the 16 and 1700s and they trace it to the its origins to the wealthier planter classes and, and this reputation that they developed uh, uh, for, you know, entertaining guests lavishly, these um, open house traditions and these apocryphal stories about, you know, going and seeking out travelers and strangers uh, to stay with them at their at their uh, plantations. Um, but what one thing that that we should recognize is that at the time when those practices were taking place, people did not refer to it as Southern hospitality. The phrase Southern hospitality doesn't actually emerge until the 1820s and 1830s, and it emerges in debates over slavery. So um, 
two points I think are important to remember about Southern hospitality that we forget is that it is linked to slavery, the, the slave economy, and it was made possible through slave labor. Uh, secondly, it's the debates over slavery that perpetuated this myth. It becomes a sort of shorthand for justifying uh, Southern plantation life as, as a version of the good life, as a version of kind of the pinnacle of, of uh, civilization and manners and social traditions and rituals. Um, so I think I think in that sense, it's uh, a myth that has these complicated origins in slavery, but then evolves into uh, assuming a variety of new meanings over time. Um, a second reason I call it a myth, and one, one thing that I think is an important point uh, that I try to emphasize in the book is that Southern hospitality is not about the South. It's a national mythology. Uh, that this was something that uh, was perpetuated through these debates over slavery, but eventually became something that you know Americans North and South were willing consumers of this idea of the South. And uh, in in regard to this sense of Southern hospitality as, as, as a national mythology, it's also a white mythology. If we look at the long history of Southern hospitality, uh, there's a, a consistency in um, you know, the message that's sent is, is a message of, of welcome for white Americans. And I think uh, we, we don't think about hospitality in the way that people thought about it in the 19th century. And so I, I try to recapture some of those uh, values and some of those debates that, uh, you know, from the 19th century Americans' perspectives. Uh, but we think of hospitality as this positive value of uh, being welcoming and, and uh, we associate it with manners and, and, and kindness uh, and generosity. But uh, if we think about hospitality from a, a more theoretical and ethical perspective, uh, hospitality is uh, on the one hand suggests uh, welcome, but uh, there, there's also uh, Hospitality is also about exclusion. It's about defining who belongs and who doesn't. And uh, discursively, at least, uh, the, the stories that are told about the South are uh, appealing to whites and appealing to whites along racial lines, where the African-Americans, whether it's the slave or later the domestic servant, are perpetually uh, on the outside. Yeah, it's really uh, hospitable to whom? Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's also um, I think one of the, the the reasons it was important to Southerners is is uh, is that also it's a it's a point of pride, you know, and, it, and hospitality is also about kind of mastery of your own space, uh, defining your own boundaries. And, and uh, so I think that it, it links into uh, a lot of these ideas of sovereignty that were popular in the, you know, in, in terms of you know, political philosophy of the 19th century antebellum South. Um, but it's just sort of an extension. Uh, it's not hospitality in, in a way that we might like to think of it, you know. Right. Yeah, it, it's a little bit more. Hospitality assumes that you have the dominion to be hospitable. Yes. Yeah. And it, and it's also like the, the, the domain of the master to be a gift giver. You know, it's sort of your benevolence. And uh, yeah, you know, the, yeah. so so it's tied to the whole culture of Southern honor. Um, and and I think, you know, one of the, the things I found interesting in my research was just that, you know, realizing that this this discourse around southern hospitality is just is is taking place 
amid all these other 19th century discourses around hospitality. Um, because if you think about 19th century, you know, etiquette books and, and manners and the idea of visiting and entertaining, uh, you know, leaving cards for people, there's, there's all these rituals. And then you also think of, you know, the biblical imperatives of Southern hospitality, not of Southern hospitality, but of just hospitality more generally. And so Americans in the 19th century were thinking about hospitality both as this pleasant social ritual, but also this biblical, you know, moral imperative. I'm interested in what you said about that enslaved people make Southern hospitality during the 19th century possible. Yes. Yeah. If it weren't, if you didn't have that labor force, you could not extend this hospitality. Yeah. And and that's something that I found Southerners even acknowledged. And, uh, you know, so this is, I think this is, you know, from an ethical perspective, we just accept Southern hospitality. We, we, well, we, we've heard it so much and mm-hmm. it's just something that goes without saying. But um, it's, it's something that uh, I, I begin one chapter with uh, a Southerner uh, traveling in New England and he basically praises Yankee hospitality as being more authentic and sincere since you know, they labor themselves for the guests. And for us, it's an easy virtue, he says. And, uh, but if you, if you think that this is a virtue based on slave labor, uh, how is it a virtue at all? (laughs) And and how can you be saying you're this good host if you are, you know, um, you know, relying on this unpaid labor and toil of others? And I think, you know, in my research, I found Obviously, some Americans who did travel south and they write about this, they were they were clearly disturbed by that, while others, you know, the, Southern hospitality in this period of sectional debate and crisis over slavery becomes this kind of compelling propaganda tool. Uh, and, and Southerners write about it in that way. And, and uh, you know, where, you know, coming into the slaveholder's house you know, you're participating in slavery, you become complicit in slavery, and you also have this sense of obligation as a guest to be thankful to the master. And, you know, uh, so you go back to New England and you write about this visit and you perpetuate this myth. So, um, so many Americans in the, in the North or non-slaveholding states, you know, they're, they're getting their images of the South through the you know, through the print media. So, so these stories that, that uh, are generated about Southern hospitality become an important part of, you know, the defense of slavery. But I think, you know, there, there are these other cases of, of people traveling and, and clearly they're disturbed by, uh, you know, the, the lavishness of in which they're entertained and then seeing these, you know, unpaid slave laborers uh, kind of serving them. And I think they're, you know, they're, they feel a sense of guilt um, and they write otherwise. What made you interested in Southern hospitality as a topic? Like of all the topics, why take on this pretty big one? Yeah, it was a lot bigger than I thought it would be. <laughs> um, I 
I originally got the idea for this book actually from from teaching class uh, and it was one of the first southern literature courses I taught here at UMass Lowell. Uh, I was nearing completion or maybe just completed my first book uh, which was on Robert Penn Warren and uh, I was teaching a southern literature class and I since I'm in Massachusetts and a lot of the you know students you know typically a lot of the students haven't traveled south or you know, uh, they, I, I, I invite them to sort of explore their perceptions about the South on the first day. So I, I always begin that class with uh, just a little free writing exercise where I ask students to, to jot down a list of things that come to mind about the South. And, and um, on, on, on this occasion, the only thing that all the students had in common, and it was on every student's list out of, out of over 20 students, um, but all of them had the phrase Southern hospitality on there. So that just kind of gave me pause. And during our discussion, we, we talked about it. And, and it was interesting because none of them could really explain what they meant by it. They recognized it. Um, and we, we speculated about wh why we think about this. And, and of course, students, you know, we immediately recognized that, you know, it's, it's antithetical to a lot of the other things we had on these lists, you know, like slavery and segregation and racial violence. Um, but why do we associate Southern hospitality? Similarly, why do we associate manners? And so uh, I, I was struck by that. And, um, you know, I just kind of, I, I knew I wanted to find out a little more about that. I had a historian uh, colleague on campus I asked about. It. He gave me a reading list of some th what historians said about it. So I started reading some of the historiography on Southern hospitality. And, and what I realized was they all, you know, talked about the antebellum period, but no one talked about why we still recognize that term today. And so that that became the thing that interested me is like, how how does something continue even though the social circumstances have changed so dramatically? And, and uh, why do we hold on to this this idea about the South? And especially when you think about just the contradictions between you know, hospitality and the legacy of, you know, racial injustice that we associate not just with the South, but with the nation. You know, John Shelton Reed had already done those surveys and it's sure enough, the Southern Focus Poll had this thing on Southern hospitality. And, and I begin my introduction with this, you know, this example, but, and, and uh, I think it was like a 1990 or uh, Southern Focus Poll. And basically the, the rate of response from Southerners and non-Southerners was, was almost identical in terms of, in your view of the South, how important is this idea of Southern hospitality? And it was like 90% of Southerners and about 90% of Northerners said either very important or somewhat important. Wow. So it was the one thing that really had that level of consistency. It's, a, it's like a welcome reconciliation of whiteness. Yes. That yeah. rather than any sort of real reconciliation or like reflection. Mm -hmm. Yeah. and. You know, I think um, the way this perpetuates itself after the Civil War, it becomes sort of perfectly suited. It's it's a matter of timing. On, on the one hand, it becomes useful for all this, you know, um, you know, to tie in for this desire for reconciliation and reunion after the war, but very much kind of on on Southern terms, you know, uh, and it's also at this point where Americans you know, are kind of lurching toward modernity and industrialization and modernization. And there's all these anxieties over loss of, you know, 
rituals and manners and traditions so you can project all these fantasies onto this idea of southern hospitality and the plantation so right. it, it's this interesting confluence of forces that that just allow southern hospitality to become detached from any question of ethics and it becomes this whole branding thing about the south so i know kind of going back to um pre-Civil War, you talk about the Fugitive Slave Act as kind of this flashpoint of maybe revealing the real break of what hospitality even means. Yes. Yeah. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? Um, just how that works in that period and what it really starts to reveal about Southern hospitality? Yeah, I think I think that um, in in the book, you know, we think of hospitality as something taking place within just the domestic space of the household, or we think of hospitality in this sort of good Samaritan, you know, kindness to the stranger. Uh, but hospitality also involves um, relationships across borders and across countries, and it's a question of universal human rights. Uh, so. In the middle of the book, I shift from kind of the more domestic space to consider kind of the legal realms. And, and uh, uh, in addition to the fugitive slave law, I also talk about uh, a set of laws collectively known as the Negro Seamen Acts or the Negro Seamen Laws uh, that were enacted in southern ports uh, in the antebellum period. And I also talk about the reception of uh, the uh, Hungarian revolutionary uh, Louis Kossuth. Uh, in the North and the South uh, in the early 1850s. But the fugitive slave law, all these, these things are kind of taking place in some sense at the same time. They're all essentially debates about hospitality. Um, and the fugitive slave law uh, essentially made it illegal. It made it a federal crime to uh, exercise hospitality toward runaway slaves. And, and I, this, this was, you know, a, a turning point in the abolitionist cause. Um, it, you know, for the first time, you know, some Americans who were on the fence may have been against slavery from afar, uh, suddenly feel that this is, this is infringing on my right, uh, to practice, you know, my, my Christian beliefs, uh, and to, to control my own threshold of my own house. Um, so so this, this was this national debate uh, that became a debate over how we defined uh, citizenship and who, who is a member of the household, who's the stranger here. Um, one of the most cited uh, biblical passages in the debate, and it was used by both sides, was this uh, uh, St. Paul's letter to Philemon, uh, and it's about, uh, you know, St. Paul is writing uh, about uh, to Philemon, whose who's slave Onesimus has run away and is with Paul in prison. And, and St. Paul sends him back, but he sends him back as a brother in Christ. And so both sides use this to, to, to justify their um their position. You know, slaveholders uh, said, see, even St. Paul sent back the runaway slave, um, whereas, you know, the, the abolitionists noted that he's now a brother in Christ. And so there was this, um, you know, kind of debate raging uh, over how we defined the stranger and who was worthy of hospitality. Yeah, because it's also, I mean, it calls back questions of just who gets to be considered human? Yes. Because would you have the obligation to be hospitable to a piece of property? Yes. And if you can't agree on the category of the human, then all the debates about hospitality 
just go out the window. Exactly, right? and that's 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 exactly what it was. It was a debate over who who, you know, who do you more owe more allegiance to? You know, these white Southerners who you have this heritage of revolution and this compact with the Constitution, or you know, and and the the slaves were referred to as the strangers in our midst, and they were the strangers who we could never assimilate. Um, you know, so so I think that the both the pro and anti-slavery uh you know causes are also using the bible to justify their position which i i think is is you know kind of worth remembering especially when we think about the you know, the importance of religion and traditional christian religion in the south even today and we think about hospitality and but to to put it in that context of as as this you know biblical imperative that we see in the Bible, and, and and we have seen that used in, say, for example, the immigration debates. Uh, it's been, you know, the, you know, some Southern evangelicals are are kind of starting to kind of make greater demands around this. I um, and I know you've talked about the. You mentioned this earlier, kind of the way hospitality changes across time and mm -hmm. how we're still considering it. Um, there was, I guess, the Alabama immigration debates, mm -hmm. which are still ongoing, yeah. although I guess it was maybe like 2011 or 10 yeah. when that, that yes. first law yeah. was passed. Um, where do you see these kind of flashpoints today or even just more contempor contemporarily where does hospitality come up as a contested idea? Well, I think that Alabama immigration case, one thing I do write about that in the epilogue of my book, which it was a, a little more current with when I was writing and, and it's now, well, it's, now it's, it's current really again. Current, yeah, it's, yeah, it's 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 current again. Um, but uh, one thing that was I, I found interesting is that, you know, some um, I, I followed some debates uh, of members of the Southern Baptist Convention where they were, you know, there were some members who were, you know, trying to push rather forcefully for the, the convention to take a stand on this issue of the immigration law. And one of the things that was interesting is they were using the same biblical passages that the abolitionists use uh, against the fugitive slave law. Uh, and, and so I found that you know, it, it just points to this idea of hospitality as this ethical ideal that in a way we can never live up to, but it's this, it's, it's, um, you know, we can never live up to it completely, but it is this ideal that we should you know, pursue. And I think that uh, they were very much in line with these progressive abolitionists and social reformers who, who they, they defined their own form of abolition hospitality as a response to, you know, Southern hospitality. Uh, and they felt that, you know, hospitality is a fugitive slave. That's much more authentic than, you know, whining and dining your guests on the unpaid labor of slaves. Mm -hmm. you know? So so they had, I think, uh, a better ethical argument, but we forget that argument. Yeah. And where does the culture industry kind of take us with oh, hospitality? Yeah. And I think I think going to, you know, to talk about contemporary uh you know, I, I, Southern hospitality is, is still, you know, it just proliferates throughout the 20th century and it kind of 
it kind of undergirds so many endeavors in the South. If you just think of the, you know, all the lifestyle industries around, you know, something like Southern Living Magazine or, or Southern Foodways, Garden and uh, Gun, Garden and Gun, um, and and so, uh, but also the 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 Southern the proliferation and development of the Southern tourism industry that was you know taking place from the 1920s through the Civil Rights Movement that uh, and and also. Um, investment from foreigners like the you know the the you know southern hospitality is part of the right to work you know sales pitch right. uh to to get foreign investment you know for for foreign auto companies to come and move to the south it was interesting in the confederate flag debate mm-hmm. um in south carolina you know the NAACP they boycotted the essentially tourism in the mm-hmm. south and i don't know that it was their intention but i thought you know, it's, you know, it's essentially boycotting the hospitality industry. And, um, you know, Nikki Haley, you know, to her credit, she did come out against the Confederate flag after, you know, the Dylan Roof uh, uh, shooting at the AME church. But before that, you know, just the year before she, when she was asked about the Confederate flag, her, her response was, I don't see any investors complaining about it. As though this was just a matter of business, that there's no question of, you know, an ethics of cultural memory here. There's these complaints are are, are frivolous. That the, you know, this is the new South, and this is you know we're moving forward with with investments from outside developers, you know, and and there's there there are these uncomfortable moments of contradiction and irony, and what you know with the Alabama case. Uh, the case of the Alabama immigration uh, HB 56 uh, law that was the harshest in the country at the time, um, there there were some ironic moments where foreign auto executives were swept up in the law and you know were arrested because they didn't have proper documentation and so there were there were some uh, pretty you know pretty scathing editorials in some of the papers just about the stupidity of the law and, and the contradiction there and there's a little bit uh you know james baldwin sort of gives it to atlanta in the 80s when he comes for the um child murders trial and he says you know atlanta calls itself the city too busy to hate and he's like the city too busy making money yes to yeah, hate yeah and so that so much of this hospitality still just has, like you said, this economic imperative. Yeah. It's well, and I, I think you know it, it is an economic imperative, and we forget, you know, what the ethics of hospitality means, uh, and and it, you know, so it becomes utterly detached. But I also think, you know, and I, I I sort of make this, I suggest this in the book is, is that, you know, this southern hospitality myth was an investment that was made by slaveholders uh, to support their lifestyle and to support, you know, their their idea of civilization. And it, it perpetuated this myth and, and, and it's paid off for generations of white Southerners and it's still paying off for the South today. And, and it goes all the way back uh, to that, you know, unpaid labor that was that was making the South rich and allowing the South uh, you know, to entertain its its guests so lavishly, um, and and we we don't see that it's invisible to us, and uh, you know that re- reminds me of it at at Monticello, and I think this is kind of a interesting illustration of it is that you know Jefferson 
had this reputation for hospitality. Uh, but he also had this this kind of very creative way of hiding the slave labor, you know, with this system of dumb waiters that, you know, slaves would be able to serve him but be unseen. And I think that's kind of a metaphor for, you know, the Southern hospitality myth itself is that today we we just take it for granted. It's something that goes without saying. But there's this unseen labor that went into the construction of this myth. And there's these unseen, you know, uh, strangers and outsiders who were perpetually pushed to the outside and relied upon uh, for, you know, the labor, but then never welcome. Um, and so in some ways, you know, I, I argue, I suggest that Southern hospitality isn't even possible from a, an ethical standpoint until after civil rights. Um, and, and so I think the, the problem is that we, when we think about you know, Southern hospitality, it's always kind of this linking the present South to the past and trying to maintain this idea of tradition. And I think, uh, you know, that that's that's part of the problem with the story. It's just kind of this repetition, uh, you know, reiterating over and over again without moving forward. Yeah, I I wonder too, I'm thinking about, I think everything you outline is sort of the Maxwell House problem, right? Where we have all of these consumer goods that even yeah. their names yeah. and their original advertising yeah. was selling this idea yes. of Southern hospitality in terms of like, a a white hospitality extending itself to whiteness. But what do you do, and I'm just kind of thinking of this, like, is there a separate type or sort of surrounding factors around black hospitality to black people traveling in the South or like native hospitality? Does this change when we take it out of whiteness? And you know, I don't, yeah. I don't know if you've talked about this or- No, I mean, I, I um... I will say is like the the book could have gone in many different directions when you get to the 20th century and I I you know part of it you just need to finish the book that yeah. you're writing and, and um I I definitely think you know after you know after the middle of the, the 20th century and after civil rights especially you know there there is you know more African Americans claim a southern identity and and many African Americans move back south I guess Thinking about are these there are these alternative frameworks of hospitality that were potentially happening in the black community mm -hmm. that it's a whole separate kind of type of hospitality yes. that's working. Yes, and it, and it's actually a truer form of hospitality if we think of this ethic of of welcoming the stranger, um, and and this is seen in in uh, this this travel book, this travel guide. It was kind of like the African Americans. You know, version of the AAA guide. It was the uh, the Green Book, the motor, uh, the uh, Negro Motors Motors Green Book, and it was published from around the 1930s up through uh, the early 1960s in the Civil Rights Act. Um, and the purpose of this was to provide African Americans who were becoming more mobile and and uh, uh, with. A, a way to navigate through not just the South, but segregated uh, facilities and, and, and services across the country. You know, how could you plan your trip? And so if you look through these books, you, you can kind of imagine somebody having to kind of have the map and figure out where they would be able to get gas next, where they might be able to stop for the night and stay. And I think one of the most revealing things is you look at, at, at the, uh, the Green Book for some years and you'll have, uh, you know, 
prominent towns and, and even a place like Charleston that we associate with this tourism industry that's thriving. And there's not one hotel listed uh, in some years where an African-American can stop at, at a, a public hotel, uh, according to the Green Book. But they do have these tourist homes. And so the tourist homes are private homes where people would, uh, you could write uh, to them ahead of time and and plan on spending the night there. So so that that's that's true hospitality to strangers, opening your uh, your your home up to uh, you know this this broader community of African Americans who are uh, it, it's it's kind of as it is kind of a ver modern version of sort of the Underground Railroad, right? That it's but then those histories sort of survive in these green books or their word of mouth. Or yes, it's things that people have to know, yeah. but for different safety reasons, maybe can't advertise. Yeah, and 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 it's something that um, I didn't learn about until I was working on this book and I can't even remember how I came across it but of course it fit perfectly and it provides this interesting on the one hand it's an alternative to kind of the the myth of southern hospitality that's being perpetuated in the tourism industry but I think it also just calls that myth into question you know in terms you know from an ethical basis and uh, you know Americans from around the country were willing consumers of this myth of southern hospitality and they're traveling south and going there to vacation uh, in the midst of segregation that they see around them and and you know it's it's interesting to think about how people would feel about that, you know, and, and I have, you know, some evidence of that in, in the book and I discussed that, but, but Americans were willing consumers. And I think that's where you see this, the, you know, the, 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 uh, racial exclusivity of the myth that it, it's a myth that kind of confirms your own white identity and your white sense of belonging. in Lowell, Massachusetts. I do. Yeah. <laughs> What's it like to talk about the South in Massachusetts? And you teach Southern literature and your students. What, what does that kind of allow you to do that maybe like writing from inside the belly of the beast, like you can't do? Yeah. You know, that's, that's a great question. And, um, I like I like that uh, phrase the inside the belly of the beast and uh, in some ways and I think this is a point I make with my students is Lowell is part of the belly of the beast that Lowell's cotton mills are are running on southern cotton so there is this you know uh, uh, I, I can't remember who said it that described the conspiracy between the lords of the lash and the lords of the loom and and uh, that that perpetuates slavery so so I think I think you know, my students, they find it, you know, interesting to kind of explore their own assumptions about the South. And I think I think there often is uh, a tendency early in, in the semester, especially when we're reading, um, you know, I tend to, to spend a good bit of time on 19th century and, and pre-Civil War and even the pro-slavery argument, pro-slavery texts. And I think there's this you know, it's it's easy for them to look at that and just with this sense of moral superiority, obviously. But as we move through the semester, I think they they start to realize more and more how 
what we're studying is not just Southern literature and Southern culture, but we're really studying American culture and American literature and, and American problems. And, uh, and so I think it, it's, I think the students in, enjoy it. And I think it's a, a, it's a type of, it's, it's an area of literary history where I think they really see the consequences of historical contexts and, and playing out in the text themselves uh, in, in interesting ways. But there is this, this connection, you know, that Lowell, um, you know, is, is this city that's made possible in, by cotton. <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah. And, and uh, there's also, you know, um, this complicated labor history here. And, and there are certainly abolitionists in Lowell, but there's also pro-slavery people in Lowell. And so I have a colleague who's also studying just how the money from Lowell went into this economy around Boston and all these Boston institutions and whether it's institutions of higher ed or, or these longstanding businesses are just they're 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 generated by this wealth that comes from these these mills and uh, so it's 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 a complicated picture um, and it's all linked to slavery and I think that uh, I think that you see a lot of that you know going on now with with institutions rethinking how their their relationship with with slavery in the past and kind of acknowledging that and trying to kind of you know come to terms with it and and how do we come to terms with it Thank you for listening this week. Please go check out Tony's book, The Southern Hospitality Myth, Ethics, Politics, Race, and American Memory. It's available from the University of Georgia Press and details are on our website. We'd also like to thank all of our friends in Lowell, Massachusetts, Sue, Paula, and everybody who came out to the panel in April about why Southern Studies matters everywhere. We'd also like to remind you that we still welcome support via our website, aboutsouthpodcast.com, link under support, or our Patreon account. You can find the links to everything on our website and our social media pages. We really appreciate anything you can do to help us out. And we do have these adorable About South magnets that you can stick anywhere that is magnetic. We'd love to send you one and we'd be really grateful for anything you can do to help us keep the show running. About South is brought to you from the historic West End of Atlanta, Georgia. Kelly Vines and Ajua Danso are my co-producers. Lindsay Baker is our marketing director. You can find us at aboutsouthpodcast.com and we are available for subscription and streaming wherever you get your podcast. Our music is by Brian Horton. You can find his music at brianhorton.com. We're back next week talking about puppets. Yes, puppets. You heard me correctly. It's going to be such a fun episode. And you're probably wondering, what do puppets have to do with the South? But we're going to tell you. Until then, take care. <laughs>